Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Journalist Andrew Rice, contributing editor at New York Magazine, theorizes that the year 2000 is the year that broke America. He's published a new book by that title in which he recounts the events of that year, which started with a fear of a global computer meltdown and ended with a battle over one of the closest presidential elections in U.S. history. In between, the Elian Gonzalez Cuban immigration crisis captured the headlines, Donald Trump first ran for president, and al-Qaeda operatives arrived in the U.S. to learn to fly. Andrew Rice, your new book is titled The Year That Broke America. It's about the year 2000. What's the central idea in the book? Well, the idea is, that, is that basically that um, the year 2000 was an unlikely turning point in American history or, or in retrospect, um, was a much bigger year in American history than, um, than, it, than was recognized at the time. Um, the book has you know five different plot lines, uh, but the two main ones are the um, the 2000 election, uh, which was decided by the closest margin imaginable between Bush and Gore, and ultimately went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the early stages of the September 11th plot. The you know both of these events were happening in the same time in the same place in Florida. Um, and which I call the the unlikely crucible of the future. So the idea is basically that um, that while uh, you know at the time the year two thousand seemed like a prosperous, placid uh, time in which American geopolitical dominance was unchallenged. In fact, the the seeds of the future were being sown. Where were you in the year two thousand? Uh, I was actually working in New York as a young reporter uh, for a newspaper called the New York Observer, which subsequently came to some uh, uh, public renown uh, in subsequent years because it was owned by uh, a young man named Jared Kushner. Um, but in the in the time that I worked for it, it was it was owned by someone else. It was a it was a young kind of puckish. Uh, newspaper that uh, that 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 covered the the people and industries of New York City in a in a sort of cheeky and irreverent way, um, and it's the it's the place where where I got my start, where I covered the the 2000 election, I saw many of these events uh, happen firsthand, and in fact, uh, got to know s- several of the characters who subsequently play a large role in my book, including uh, Donald Trump, who. Uh, at the time, I, I got one of my the things I covered was commercial real estate. He was a, sort of a regular source of mine. And uh, during that year, he was running for president. So that was something that um, I and a lot of my colleagues were following quite closely, um, along with, you know, other uh, events, political events that were going on during the year 2000, many of which ended up becoming a part of the of the fabric of this book. So you're still working as a journalist today. At what point along the time frame did this theory or thesis about the year 2000 being the pivotal year develop for you? Well, I think I, I think I recognized it in the moment, um, in the sense that I, I think that uh, many of us who were uh, or, or pretty close to the moment, I think many of us who lived through um, the 2000 election and then the almost immediate kind of a jarring, uh, disruptive um, event of shocking event of September 11th uh, reflected on the fact that 
the stakes of the 2000 election seem much higher in retrospect than they than they seemed at the time. Uh, the the idea of actually writing it as a book didn't didn't really come to me in, until several years later when um, really in, after after 2016 when uh, having covered uh, Donald Trump's uh, unlikely rise to power, uh, I, I started thinking about having covered him during his first presidential campaign during during 2000. I started thinking about all the all the sorts of pieces of the future that were falling into place during the year 2000 during this time when uh, w- when I was starting out as a journalist. And uh, gradually, the the contours of the book came came into uh, came into into shape for me, thinking about kind of the ways in which all these events were in, interconnected and and happening at the same time. What was it like writing the book in another pivotal year, the coronavirus year? Well, it was actually um, I had a a book leave that began um, at the uh, beginning of February in 2020. I had a bit of uh, reporting that I had to take care of in Florida in order to get started on writing the book. And I actually uh, finished my last reporting trip on uh, March 8th of 2020. I flew back to New York. People were already a little bit alarmed about these reports about what was happening in China, what was happening in Italy, and but no one really knew what was going to happen. Uh, so my writing process really coincided with the uh, the, the, the pandemic and the, and the progress of the pandemic. Uh, for a while, I was really shut down in, in, in my attic uh, writing this book while the rest of the world sort of came to a standstill. And ultimately, you know, what ended up happening was I continued writing the book chronologically through, the, through 2020, uh, writing about the events of the year 2000. And just the way things fell into place, I was writing about the presidential campaign of 2000 while the presidential campaign of 2020 was going on. I was writing about the recount um, and the and the legal battle over the president to determine the presidency during the aftermath of the of the 2020 election, and and really sort of uh, seeing the, the the parallels between these two events come very much coming to the fore. I, I suppose it was. I mean, no one would. I wouldn't have wished it for it to happen. I, I thought I think the 2020 election was a horribly traumatic event for our country, but it was it was useful in a way to have a kind of um, a reference point, uh, a historical reference point that I was thinking about all the time as all, all these events were happening. You described that there are five major storylines that weave their way through your book. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your writing style because readers will find some very specific details. As an example, uh, books that were in Osama bin Laden's hideout or the actual meals ordered by the Bush and Gore attorneys after they argued the case at the Supreme Court. Where do you find that that specific kind of information in your work and what do you think it adds to your storytelling? Well, I mean, I, I used all kinds of different uh, source materials to, uh, to, to, to put, pull together this book. I mean, there were everything from uh, Freedom of Information Act requests that uh, I used to write one particular portion of the story about uh, an ATF uh, alcohol, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms investigation involving a, a former Goldman Sachs bond trader who's a major character in this book um, to uh, 
court records, whether it's the court records of uh, civil suits that, that arose from the from the from the Florida uh, recount um, or criminal cases, uh, for instance, for the 9-11 portion, I used a lot of uh, records from the military uh, commission tribunals in Guantanamo Bay. Uh, I think, you know, and then there were other secondary source materials like like books, obviously, but also oral histories. A lot of the people who I've been writing about have told versions of their stories in various different places. And as a journalist, I, you know, I, I'm a, I have a, a bit of an investigative bent as a journalist, and and I often, you know, like to like to to sort of find these little telling details inside uh, very large piles of documents, and and maybe that's one of the things that I've learned in my many years as a as a journalist, sort of how to find those little details that make the story come to life. So, you know. What 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 people ate for dinner, or or um, or the specific itineraries of the nine eleven hijackers as as uh, you know as they went through their flight training in Florida, or where they where they shopped where when they were living there, um, all these sorts of things were were things that could be found in the in the documentary record, and I think helped to kind of uh, create a more uh, novelist type of narrative that uh, draws in a reader and makes the reader feel as if they're, they're, they're ha- the story is happening in real time. Well, let's dig in a little bit more to the story that you tell. So coming into the new millennium, what was the state of the nation? Well, I think it's really telling at this historical moment, you know, um, with the, you know, as, as we're all watching the war in Ukraine and, and sort of seeing this, this period of great geopolitical upheaval, uh, largely, I think, created because of, of a, a, the, a rising from a sense that American power is waning and on the on the world stage, or at least has been called into question on the world stage. Um, in the year two thousand, um, the America's position in the world was was really one of 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 predominant had a predominant position in the world people were seriously talking about thing about the triumph of of liberal democracy the idea that uh, that 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 the that Russia China and all these other countries were sort of inevitably marching towards a, a sort of uh endpoint um I, the end of history as frank fukuyama called it um, in which you know all the nations of the world would 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 embrace liberal democracy, um, it was a time of great prosperity. Uh, there was a four trillion dollar surplus. The a lot of the the political polarization of the uh, of earlier eras in American history had waned. The the two parties were considered to be almost sort of interchangeable at that time period. So it was really a a, a placid interlude. Uh, that during which a lot of people thought politics and the presidential election and geopolitics and faraway foreign policy crises didn't didn't really matter to their lives. But of course, as I show in the book, all of these things had a, a tremendous, tremendously consequential effect on on America and on on people's lives. 
One specific uh, thing that you note is that December 31st, 1999 is the day that Vladimir Putin came into power. Was it a remarkable event? Was it considered remarkable at the time? It was shocking. Uh, if you look at the front pages of the um, newspapers, every newspaper in the world, essentially, there were you know, uh, the, the, the lead headline, for instance, in The New York Times was just a giant date, 1100, pictures of people celebrating uh, around the world. Uh, on the left column, uh, in the left column on the, on the front page, there was a, a front page article about Boris Yeltsin surprising Russia by resigning early in a, in a speech uh, delivered from the Kremlin and handing power to a then unknown colorless bureaucrat named Vladimir Putin, uh, who was widely presumed during that time period to probably be a sort of caretaker figure. And it wasn't until much later that the, 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 the consequences of that, of that change of power became evident to everyone. Two things that the world was on knife's edge about as the new millennium dawned. One was the Y2K global computer meltdown that people were afraid of. And uh, the the other actually uh, was terrorism, including that, as you remind people, many of the New Year's Eve celebrations globally were canceled because of fear of terrorism. Neither of those things played out. So then what happened afterwards? Well... You know, there's a sort of ironic joke in the book that 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 I that I make um, towards the end of the book that the that the people who predicted a, a grand cataclysmic event uh, bringing the 20th century to an end uh, with Y2K with a computer with with this computer bug that that many people thought was going to spell the end of uh, spell the end of the of the of 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 modernity um you know i said that the, the, those people who the the doomsayers weren't completely wrong there was a grand cataclysmic event it just didn't quite happen on the the calendar schedule uh the grand cataclysmic event of course being the, the september 11th attacks that that the fundamentally realigned the world um, so my book is really about what happened in between those two events between them between the predicted catastrophe and the actual catastrophe um what what happened between those two events, as I as I said, is a kind of a period in which the the pieces of the future were were falling into place, in which George W. Bush and and Al Gore uh, fought for the presidency uh, in 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 what turned out to be a, a very incredibly close and incredibly consequential election, and a time period in which American society was really changing in a in a in a variety of really profound ways, you know, one of the subplots in the book involved, as a, as as I as I think you've alluded to already, involves um, the Elian Gonzalez controversy, uh, which was not just a, uh, it was a it was the biggest news event in America for about four or five months in in early two thousand, uh, but was also a kind of formative moment in the. Uh, development of our modern media culture, this media culture in which uh, we, it seems as if the entire nation is transfixed by uh, passing episodic kind of uh, obsessive uh, binge-worthy uh, dramas. And these, you know, in, in this 
these sorts of real life dramas, whether they be, you know, on, on, whether they be packaged as entertainment as reality TV or packaged as, as, as news, as reality, uh, are, this is the way that we, we, we kind of entertain ourselves and, and the way in which we experience, uh, history at this point is, is in these really sort of all consuming, uh, media events. And that really began with, in the year 2000 with the Elian Gonzalez controversy and later with the recount. If Florida is the, as you called it, a crucible or centerpiece of your story, was Florida ripe for this role? Was there something special about Florida that, that put it into this set of circumstances? Well, I mean, there were, there were a lot of it is, of course, a product of historical uh, coincidence that, you know, say, for instance, that the, the, all the, things that had to fall into place in, in order for Florida to assume this pivotal role in the 2000 election. You had to have all the, some of your viewers may not even remember exactly what the, what happened in the 2000 election. I found younger people don't always know all the details. So, you know, what, what essentially happened is Gore won the popular vote, Bush um, lost by about 500,000 votes in the popular vote, but the way that the electoral college fell that fell out, Essentially, it was a it was a tie in the electoral college, with Florida occupying the the deciding uh, role. You know, whoever won Florida was going to win the election, and uh, then it came down to this minuscule number of votes in Florida, just a, a few hundred or at times a few thousand votes, uh, separating the two candidates as they fought back and forth over these over these legal battles. So, so really, there was an element of of kind of incredibly improbable circumstance that threw Florida into this into this place. But as I also say in the story, you know, Florida was it, it was it was serendipitous in a way that Florida occupied this role because it really was the place that the rest of America was becoming. It had both a kind of uh, uh, conservative white uh, uh, white working class po- population in the north that was uh, the, the the they call that area that the the redneck Riviera around uh, the, the Panhandle region and, and so on and then in the south of Florida you have this polyethnic uh, multicultural multilingual uh, very diverse uh, and also very you know sort of chaotic uh, South Florida political culture so, so you have you know in this one place a lot of the elements that that we now recognize as being sort of part of part of our political culture in America today, you know, encapsulated in the, in the small place. The ironic part of it is that at the time people considered this, you know, Florida a big joke. They called it Florida, spelled D-U-H. Uh, you know, the, the idea was that Florida was a state that just couldn't get it right. And Florida was this. Florida was the state that you really couldn't couldn't trust to, to decide anything. Um, of course, in the end, the joke ended up being on everybody else. So, Elian Gonzalez, who we've referenced a few times, uh, what's what's a brief capsule of his story? Who was he, and why did he become such a cause celeb? So, my book actually one of the the, the threads that I guess begin the book is, it begins with a with a with a journey. Uh, this journey happened began around late November of of 1999. Uh, a group of 
uh, a dozen or so Cuban refugees packed onto a, a flimsy boat and set sail for Miami uh, under the uh, prevailing uh, policy of the time. Uh, Cubans who made it to Miami on boats would be given asylum, would be put on a fast track to citizenship. It was well known in Cuba, which at the time was suffering under extremely stringent U.S. sanctions. It was well known that, you know, if you could just make it to 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 uh, to, to Miami, you, there would be a, a better life waiting for you there. So this group of about around a dozen uh, Cubans set, set sail. They hit the, the, the boat was not really seaworthy. They hit a storm. The boat ultimately ended up capsizing. Most of them died. One young boy miraculously was found on Thanksgiving Day, 1999, clinging to a, an inner tube off of uh, off of the coast of, of of Florida, near not not far from from Miami. Is brought to shore and taken to live with his uh, relatives. His extended extended relatives. His, his mother had died, but his father's relative on the on the boat. But his father's relatives were living in 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 Florida, welcomed him in, uh, uh, pledged to to raise him, you know, as as their own son. The problem that arose was that his father was still alive, and his father was in Cuba. His father didn't want him to go back to didn't want him to to continue living in in the United States he wanted to be reunited with his son understandably and uh he wanted to to stay in Cuba because he had a life there he didn't want to to emigrate he was estranged from Elian's mother and uh the, what ensued was this incredible custody battle where the relatives in Miami asserted that they knew what was best for the boy that the they were upholding the 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 uh dying wishes of the of his mother who had given her life to take him uh to to the united states the the boy's father backed by fidel castro and ultimately by uh the clinton administration and and his uh attorney general janet reno miami native who figures really large in my story um they 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 basically backed the rights of the father became a gigantic uh standoff legal standoff and political standoff that ultimately was only resolved when uh, Janet Reno ordered a raid on the boy's house and uh, on the on the Miami relatives house in Little Havana that yielded a, a sort of indelible image of a border patrol agent with a with a with a uh, submachine gun uh, pointing at it in the general direction of the boy and this became a, a you know a, an unfor- this was an unforgettable image that ultimately uh, ended up helping to c- cost Al Gore the election because it's, it drove an enormous uh, Cuban turnout in Miami on election day, largely for largely turning out for George W. Bush and and un- you know, indisputably carry- helping Bush to to carry the state of Florida by the narrowest possible margin of 537 votes. We have a brief clip, 36 seconds of President Clinton talking about the Elian Gonzalez raid from April of 2000. We're going to watch now. The Department of Justice, under the leadership of Attorney General Reno, went to great lengths to negotiate a voluntary transfer. Even yesterday, the Attorney General worked very hard on this late into the night. 
showing great restraint, patience, and compassion. When all efforts failed, there was no alternative but to enforce the decision of the INS and the federal court that Juan Miguel Gonzalez should have custody of his son. The law has been upheld, and that was the right thing to do. But you tell a story behind the scenes, both of uh, Attorney General Janet Reno and the uh, angst at the White House about the process she was taking. So with the hindsight of 20 years, what mistakes did she make in approaching the, the crisis? Well, I think that, the you know, before we talk about the mistakes, I think we should give her credit for the the uh, for for what she was attempting to do, which was you know, she was from Miami. She had formerly been elected prosecutor in Miami. And she felt as if she had was sort of uh, perfectly situated to resolve this unresolvable crisis. She was somebody who was, Janet Reno was somebody who was ex- extremely dedicated to the rights of welfare of children. This was one of her signature causes throughout her entire life. And so when presented with this case of this uh, child whose, whose fate was being tugged and argued back and forth by 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 presidential candidates, by his family, by by the entire American public, Janet Reno thought that she was the person who could, perhaps the alone, was the person who could uh, solve the problem. What ended up happening, of course, is that her all the all of her best intentions ended up uh, backfiring because the uh, the her her involvement involvement really elevated the crisis emboldened the the Cuban exiles in Miami and and made the uh and, and made the it, it a, a kind of political issue that the that the Republicans and including the George W. Bush's campaign um and and you know under the uh partial guidance of Bush's brother Jeb who was the governor of Florida well acquainted with the with the political dynamics of South Florida um basically because Reno elevated it into this enormous national issue or helped to elevate it into this enormous national issue. The Republicans recognized that it was a extremely salient political issue that would, that would uh, potentially help them to win Florida in, in the, in the presidential election uh, coming that was then coming up in 2000. So that, so, so really it was one of these cases where, um, you know the 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 road to uh, the, uh, the the road to uh, uh, perdition, I guess, was 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 uh, was paved with very good intentions on on her part. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it, it did not turn out well for anyone, except arguably for Elian, because Elian did eventually go back uh, to live with his father, and ultimately had he now lives in Cuba and has expressed. A great uh, gratitude to ultimately to the the people who returned him to his father because he did not want as an adult he says that he did not want to live his life in in, in Miami with this uh, group of extended relatives but rather with his with his nuclear family in in, uh, in in Cuba. Considering the political stakes, did did both of the candidates, Bush and Gore, have a position on Elian Gonzalez? Yes, Bush's was very clear. Um, Bush, Bush, like every like most members of the Republican Party, felt that um, argue, made the case that Elian should 
remain in the United States. Bush quite memorably um, suggested that Elian's father come and uh, be granted asylum as well. He said, you know, we'll give this man a, a whiff of freedom, he said, uh, in, his, in his Texas twang, which I won't try to uh, imitate. And, uh, and, and that, you know, once, once, once he had this whiff of freedom, he would, uh, he would undoubtedly want to stay in the United States permanently. Now, uh, that didn't ultimately end up happening. Juan Miguel did come to retrieve his son and did not want to stay in the United States. Um, so Bush was wrong about that, but his, his position was clear. Al Gore had a very tortured position, which was actually, as I, as I say in the book, was sort of uh, was was of a piece with his uh, uh, larger political problem of always trying to find the the sort of perfectly calibrated political response to any given situation. Uh, his position was that uh, well, he had a bunch of different positions that he adopted, but the one that he ultimately adopted was more similar to Bush's and the Republicans than to Clinton's, which ultimately ended up causing him a lot of problems because. He, he appeared to be repudiating his own administration, which angered a lot of Democrats, while he didn't really get any credit whatsoever from the Cubans in Miami or from the Republican Party. And as a result, he, he, his, his advisors later blamed uh, his, diff- his difficulties in the polls in the early spring and summer of 2000 when he trailed Bush by a substantial margin before coming back. They, they, they attributed a lot of that difficulty that he was having to people's, uh, it, it, basically his, his too cute by half response to the Elian Gonzalez controversy and the, and the way in which it made many people think that he was insincere or politically calculating. So if this book is the lead up to the 9-11 attacks, just a couple of questions. We're at the halfway point of our hour together. You tell the story of the the lead up to the attacks through the uh, eyes of one of the uh, 9-11 attackers, Ziad Jara. Who was he and why did you choose him? Um, Jara was a um, a young Lebanese uh, man. He was uh, 20 three or 24, 24 years old, maybe when he originally set off on, on, on his journey as, uh, that would, that would end in his death on September 11th, uh, along with the death of many other innocent people. Um, the, um, or he was, uh, I should say he was not an innocent person, but the death of many innocent people, uh, he was a, was a wealthy, came from a wealthy family, was a cultured, uh, person had attended Christian schools and and in Beirut, even though he was himself uh, a Muslim, he was a sort of person who uh, was what, what we would maybe call at that time, you know, quote unquote Westernized. He would drink. He uh, had a had a girlfriend who, uh, when he lived in, he went to Germany to to study. And he had a girlfriend there who was of Turkish extraction. Um, she was she was not um, she was not herself very religious. And at some point in his in his relatively in, in his early twenties, he fell in with a group of young men at a mosque in Hamburg, 
uh, became very devout, very religious. People noted uh, a kind of transformation in, in him uh, around this time. And he uh, ultimately ended up with a group of four, three other individuals from his mosque in Hamburg uh, went on a, on a journey. I, as I point out in the, in the book, as sort of a historical coincidence of, of sorts, his journey to Afghanistan started on Thanksgiving Day November 25th, 1999. Uh, so, so really the same day that Elian Gazas arrived in Florida, he also set out on a journey. His journey took him to Afghanistan, where he initially, along with his comrades uh, or fellow members of, of, of his uh, cell in Hamburg, as it was later called, but really just a group of friends, uh, initially wanted to volunteer to fight on the front lines in the Afghan Civil War. But it, he and his friends were quite quickly identified by Osama bin Laden's lieutenants who were always on the lookout for potential recruits uh, who, who could be used for missions in the West. Um, they were identified as having sort of a, a special and in fact almost complete, almost unique set of skills that would uh, make them the almost perfect group of people to try to to give this assignment of carrying out the what they was called the planes operation. This all happened in a very, very short period of time uh, during Ramadan in, in 1999, uh, which is December 1999 and uh, early January, early January 2000. The, these individuals came to Afghanistan. They were recruited within a, a few weeks. They were 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 sort of inducted into al-Qaeda, they met Osama bin Laden, they accepted their mission, their suicide mission, to um, and and were basically given the rudiments of the plan to, to attack the United States. But really, they left in mid-January of 2000, ha- had very little contact after that with, uh, with anyone from al-Qaeda, uh, and, and, and they were really the people who were responsible for planning carrying and carrying out the conceptual idea of the the 9-11 attacks the one of the major things that i found fascinating uh, in the course of doing this was the degree to which although in 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 the historical common historical memory uh it's it's osama bin laden or khalid sheikh mohammed who who are uh typically referred to as the the architects or the masterminds of the 9-11 attacks what i thought was quite interesting was that Ziyadra and Muhammad Atta and a couple of other individuals that uh, he was close to in Hamburg, they really were the people who who planned and carried out these these attacks themselves. They were they were the architects of uh, the architects of the attack were really the people who carried it out. And um, I thought it was quite interesting to understand their motivations and even in Jara's case, conflicts, internal conflicts that uh, he experienced right up until the moment, really almost the moment that the attack was launched, uh, internal struggles as to whether he wanted to continue on, he wanted to carry out the attack. Uh, many times he almost left, and ultimately he was he was talked back into it by by uh, by the his fellow perpetrators. Uh, and no one can really say what truly motivated him, but what we can say is that it's a it's a it, it's a an interestingly human story about it, an unhumanly evil act.
I do want to get to the election, which is really what the book is all focused on. But one last question about Osama bin Laden. There are several times in your narrative where you depict the national security team in the Clinton White House, who is well aware of the threat of Osama bin Laden, um, as uh, debating about whether or not to pull the trigger. Why, why ultimately did they not ever do that? Well, I think that there was... I mean, it's quaint to think it now, but I think that there was a there was a a reluctance on the part of of some people within the Clinton administration, Janet Reno being one of them, to to take that step toward that would have uh, many of the plans involved um, kidnap operations that were really, you know, not which were anticipated, which were essentially assassination operations uh, in, in all but name. Uh, they were they were the CIA was anticipating resistance and that and that that would resist that resistance would end with the with the death of Osama bin Laden and perhaps many other uh, you, you know young young children uh, innocent women uh, and so on and um, and the there was there was trepidation within the Clinton foreign uh, foreign policy or national security team at that time about whether this would be a, a step too far, whether this was a step that would be contrary to uh, American values. What, one, of, one of those values at the time was um, that, we, that the United States d- didn't, didn't, didn't order assassinations, even against people who were, uh, who, were, who were clear sworn enemies of the United States. Uh, so, uh, so ultimately, I think there was a lot of internal struggle between the the sort of the lawgivers you might call them, uh, you know, Janet Reno foremost among them, or, or the the law the people who were uh, believed that the highest uh, value was the was the rule of law, and the the people who were thinking more about you know the results and the threats and what potentially uh, Al Qaeda could could do, and um, it wasn't so much that the the Janet Reno and and her faction won these arguments as they just managed to kind of stretch the uh, decision-making process out long enough that the election intervened. And by the end, by October 2000, when the uh, attack on the USS, uh, the warship USS Cole happened, a lot of these conversations came to a head. And Bill Clinton decided at that point, you know what, there's going to be election. It's we can we can set this aside and let uh, let's not do something that would maybe uh, cause a political blowback uh, right in the midst of an election campaign. And then, you know, after the, the recount period was finished, there was only a very brief period of time. And ultimately, the Clinton administration decided, well, we'll let the next guy deal with it. And, you know, unfortunately, the next guy didn't deal with it or didn't deal with it promptly enough to avert the, the 9-11 attacks. Moving on to the election, let's talk about Donald Trump. You talk about his uh, 2000 campaign as a run that has essentially been, quote, airbrushed out of history. We have Donald Trump uh, on January 5th, 2000, uh, talking about his potential campaign. I think it's uh, something that's turned out to be very serious. If you look at the crowds, if you look at our internal poll numbers have been amazing. The ratings on television have been the highest of anyone by far. So if you look at the various numbers, I think, you know, people have now seen that this has become very real. I'm going to make a decision on probably during the month of February. 
and that'll be based on whether or not I think I can win. I'm not looking to get 20% of the vote. If I think I can win, we may very well have a very positive decision. His vehicle that he was contemplating was the Reform Party. The 20% was a reference to the 19-plus percent that Ross Perot had gotten as a Reform Party candidate uh, in earlier election. And I'm, I'm wondering, uh, since you covered Donald Trump, how much did the tenants of the Reform Party in 2000 uh, connect with the Donald Trump you knew and his politics? Well, this is, you know, again, one of the historical ironies of this whole story, which is that, that, as you can hear even in that clip, the Donald Trump of 2000 sounds exactly like the Donald Trump of, of 2016, the Donald Trump of 2020, and perhaps the Donald Trump of 2024. The the difference between Donald Trump in 2000 and Donald Trump in these in these later years is that he didn't really have anything to say. His, his as you, you could hear him, uh, saying in that in in that in that clip, he's he's talking about poll numbers. He's talking about his popularity. He's talking about his celebrity. He's talking about the the public response to his uh, efforts to to, uh, to 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 begin a presidential campaign. You know, all of this is very familiar. But he didn't have an ideology. Uh, he essentially his ideology was a kind of um, you know vote for me, I'm famous. Uh, the there was another candidate who was running, however, within the Reform Party, which a lot of people don't remember now. But the Reform Party was a third party that was that was begun by the followers of Ross Perot to as a as a sort of vehicle for his third party presidential campaigns in, in 1992 and 1996, in which he ran as a kind of budget slashing populist. And there was a, a, a group that the, the 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 reform party the core of the reform party is actually very much the the same group of people ideologically that we now see, think of as the trump base or the the republican base these are people who are anti-trade agreements these are people who are talk about things like uh immigrate restrictive immigration policies and retributive law and order uh, policies and so on, and they actually had a candidate who 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 spoke their language in that campaign in 2000. His name was Pat Buchanan, and he was the guy that 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 Donald Trump ran against and ultimately, you know, lost to. Um, he or pulled out in lieu of uh, in lieu of losing to the uh, Buchanan at that time. His his slogan was "America First." He talked about building a wall or building a, a, a barrier along the uh, the border with uh, the border with with Mexico he talked very much about you know how America's judeo-christian uh, you know fun, fundamental character was under threat from outsiders and and as he referred to sort of invaders from from other nations this is all stuff that we we now associate with the Donald Trump's wing of the Republican party at the time Donald Trump attacked Pat Buchanan in his typical fashion uh as a as a, he called him a hitler lover he he called his followers weirdos um, you know the, the of course the the the, the the historical irony is is that 16 years later, a lot of the, those same people who supported Pat Buchanan ended up becoming the, the, the most core fervent supporters of Donald Trump. On Election Day, uh, Pat Buchanan, who was the ultimate Reform Party nominee, 
got less than 1% of the vote. But uh, just to advance our story, what uh, did happen is that his name on Palm Beach County, Florida's butterfly ballots became a real source of the ensuing argument, debate, vote over who won the election. So let's, uh, we have about 15 minutes left. Election day, uh, November 7th, 2000, actually became election six weeks, lasting until December 13th when Al Gore conceded. Uh, so to, you have a lot of the detail in the TikTok in your book, which, which people can find more about the characters and the strategies they employed. Uh, but I wanted to just ask you about one dramatic scene in the middle of the night on election night with Al Gore in a car ready to make a, a concession. What changed their mind about him doing that? Well, it's one of the most famous, famously pivotal moments in, in American electoral history where Al Gore had had called George W. Bush around three in the morning. The networks had all uh, declared that Bush had won Florida, thereby becoming president of the United States. There was you know, the, the, the typical kind of hoopla and so on, you know, surrounding uh, surrounding that those those declarations around three in the morning. Gore called conceded to Bush. Uh, but meanwhile, there had been some uh, uh, many, basically, there have been some glitches in the in the in the vote counting. Uh, in fact, one of the major ones that actually triggered the projection for 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 Bush was a was a, a later attributed to a broken memory card from a from a, a vote counting machine uh, in one particular precinct in uh in 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 daytona beach area um ultimately this kind of triggered this you know the this this projection for bush gore conceded once the 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 mistake was rectified the 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 distance between the two candidates became much smaller and meanwhile results were pouring in from other parts of the state that were very strong for for Gore, where he showed you know unanticipated strength, places like Palm Beach County and 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 so on, and uh, ultimately brought the 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 results within a few hundred votes uh, as he was about to approach the stage in Nashville to give his concession speech. So his, his in the days before cell phones, he did not know this. Uh, and uh, and and people were not able to get through to him in his limousine. So he, he actually a staff member kind of almost had to wrestle him <laughs> away from the stage, take him to a back room where he watched as the the results came closer and closer, and ultimately delivered made what was you know one of the most awkward phone calls in American history uh, to 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 George W. Bush, where he retracted his concession. And and Bush reacted very negatively to it. Uh, Al Gore uh, famously replied, "Don't you don't have to get snippy about it." If you told the story of Elian Gonzalez and the impact on the Cuban American vote in South Florida, uh, one other character to put in here, which became important to the closeness of this, was Jesse Jackson. Reverend Jesse Jackson, uh, who uh, campaigned very vigorously to get the African-American vote out in the election. Uh, And he also played a role in the uh, recount process uh, in his counseling with Al Gore. Tell that story, please. Well, this is this is actually sort of one of this is one of the 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 lesser known or lesser told parts of of the recount story. The. 
while while a lot of the focus subsequently, uh, understandably, was on uh, uh, from from the media and the campaigns was on a handful of ballot malfunctions, including the one you re- referenced earlier, the butterfly ballot in, in Palm Beach, where mistakenly a lot of voters, many of them elderly Jewish voters, ended up by accident voting for Pat Buchanan because of a, a faulty ballot design. Um, there was a, a much larger story of uh, of 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 uh, what was uh, whether inadvertent or or deliberate uh, disenfranchisement of uh, voters of color in in Florida who turned out in really huge numbers for for Gore on election day. Uh, a later study by a federal civil rights commission estimated that one in seven uh, black voters ballots were were uh, invalidated for one reason or another on election day, lar- largely because of technical mistakes or other ballot design flaws that caused them to either n- not have a vote registered at all or to inadvertently vote for, for two different presidential cam- candidates, thereby invalidating their vote. Jesse Jackson showed up uh, you know, during this time period the 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 foremost uh, civil rights voice in the in the country was Jesse Jackson. Uh, he showed up in Florida and really tried to make this a a, a big public issue. He staged a march in Palm Beach County, in which he was uh, booed off the stage and and ultimately kind of evacuated because there was concerns about safety um, by by Republican supporters. Um, and he he was very much trying to 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 say uh, to the to the public that he felt that there was something that didn't seem right about the election results that he thought the election had been had been in fact stolen from the Democrats. Uh, Gore did not, you know, and, and and maybe we can look at this decision by Gore in retrospect and understand it or or view it in. Um, more favorable light now in light in light of 2020 and the consequences of it. But Gore basically told Jesse Jackson, "No, I really want you know I I, I want to to calm this down. I do not want to talk about uh, you know, this rhetoric of a stolen election. I do not want to talk about racial disenfranchisement uh, publicly and 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 raise uh, fears of you know." Uh, or, or raise race as an issue in this election, and that was sort of a card that he 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 chose not to play in the course of the recount. Uh, and I think many of his advisors, and certainly Jesse Jackson, think in retrospect that that was a mistake. So ultimately, of course, the election landed in the hands of the Supreme Court in two cases. First, uh, Bush v. Palm Spring, uh, Palm Beach County Canvassing Board, and then ultimately Bush v. Gore, which they heard an oral argument. And uh, you have some private conversations reported in your book between members of the court about the case. How were you able to, uh, to get that sort of information? Had they spoken about it publicly afterwards? Well, th- this is where you know I, I in in this particular narrow case, a lot of my um, a lot of a lot of what I have in my book is dependent on uh, the work you know the, which I of course footnote and attribute uh, to, that that other journalists have done. Evan Thomas uh, wrote a biography of Sandra Day O'Connor that's excellent that relied heavily on on her papers. Uh, Justice John Paul Stevens. 
uh, before his death, wrote, wrote a memoir in which he gave some, uh, you know, retrospective uh, color to 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 the court's internal deliberations. There, uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, prior to her death, spoke publicly uh, at, a, at, a, at a, a public forum about, you know, what she called that day, you know, the day, the one day when, when, when Bush v. Gore was, was decided and the way in which uh, the, the, the justices were kind of going around and almost sort of trading favors like ward healers with, with one another and negotiating, trying to negotiate their, uh, their opinions in a, in a, in a more nakedly political way than they, than they customarily do. And then, and then finally, there was a quite a bit of investigative uh, reporting done on this subject uh, by journalists in the aftermath that a lot of the clerks, especially the clerks of the liberal justices, were quite upset about Bush v. Gore. Some of them, in a in an, a rare breach of their code of omerta that they that they take as. As, as Supreme Court clerks, some of them did talk with Vanity Fair uh, a few years later about the court's internal deliberations during that that weekend. So, using all these you know, sources, and then, and then there were oral histories and so on that many of the uh, many of the, the the lawyers and other major protagonists in the case had given. So, using all of these kinds of um, historical records, I was able to, to to weave together a lot of the internal. TikTok of the of the of the court's deliberations. So, Andrew, we ha- we have uh, five minutes left, and, and 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 so much more we could would dig into here. But let me just kind of ask wrap up questions about this. So, with the hindsight of twenty years, how does Al Gore's decision to concede, which even after the court case, you report that some of his uh, internal advisors were arguing against, how does that decision look with twenty years hindsight? Well, I think that the you know with 19 years of hindsight, when I started writing the book, it looked a lot different than it did with 20 years of hindsight. Which is to say, that everything looked much different in in in, in light of 2020. The, I, I think that you know Gore's decision not to continue to contest the the validity of the election, not to to his decision to ultimately uh, concede the election and not to cast doubt on the legitimacy of of his opponent George W Bush even though i think Al Gore if you hooked him up to a to a lie detector and asked him who who he thought won the election he would he would he would tell you that, that he thought that he did um his decision ultimately was to was that he thought that the the the, the legitimacy of the of the office of the presidency was too important to potentially squander by casting doubt on the results of the election. He believed that the transition of power was uh, something that was more important than his own personal power. And ultimately he made a a huge sacrifice in terms of his own um, ego and his own uh, political, his own ambitions in terms of saying, you know what, I think I think we fought long enough. Now, he of course wanted to preserve his political viability for the future, and he was still a young man thinking about possibly running again in 2004. So it wasn't completely uh, a, a selfless act. But that said, it, it still took a lot to 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 concede. And 
you know, at the time we took it as a as a as a given that the that the loser would ultimately concede the election, no matter how unfair it seemed to his supporters. But as we've seen, unfortunately, in, in history since then, it's not a given. And, and in fact, the consequences of not doing that can be really profoundly awful. If, uh, as you declare, 2000 was the year that broke America, what ultimately do you see as the uh, impact of, of what happened that year on this country? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, with the benefit of 20 years of retrospect, we can see a couple of things uh, tracing all the way back to the year 2000. I mean, the first one is, is that the the American dominance on the on the international stage uh, and American prosperity, the the acknowledgement of liberal democracy and uh, American led globalization as the as the uh, as as the norm for for all nations that's something that that began to to wane after september 11th after the the, the shocking attack on on the on the on the world trade centers and, and the subsequent many decade long uh military engagements that drained so many re, so many moral political and financial resources from this from this nation uh, and I think that the the other really consequential event that we can trace back to 2000 is this idea, as I alluded to a moment ago when I was talking about Gore, this idea that that the that the institutional uh, authority of the Supreme Court, of the electoral system, of of democracy itself, uh, here in the United States, n- never really fully recovered from 2000. After since 2000, there really hasn't been a presidential election that hasn't been surrounded by claims of illegitimacy. Uh, John Kerry supporters claim that uh, some John Kerry supporters claim that there were was electoral shenanigans in Ohio that cost him the election in 2004. In 2008, many Republicans believe that Barack Obama was illegitimately elected because they believed a, a racist conspiracy theory about his birth and. 2016, the foremost proponent of that racist conspiracy theory became president, and the and the Democrats ended up spending several years trying to prove that you know the Donald Trump's election was engineered by a by a foreign power, uh, that being Russia, and you know when 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 Trump was was elected in 2020, well we all know what happened and culminating in the in the storming of the Capitol on January 6th, so. It's it's hard to foresee a scenario in which in the in the in the near future at least uh, an election is likely to to result in the in the election of a truly uh, a, a president that's con- considered legitimate by all Americans and that that's a really profound uh, change for the worst that I think uh, traces back to this period in 2000. That said, um, as I always say, you know. It, it, because it just because something that's broken can always be fixed again. I do think that there's a way back to um, to a, a, a different, more um, uh, a more uh, idyllic period, or or a, a better, a more democratic period, uh, like like the one that we experienced prior to the year 2000. And and you know it's hard to see how we get there right now, but I think one of the ways in which we start to get there is look at how things went wrong and how we might correct them in the future. 
Journalist Andrew Rice's new book, The Year That Broke America, with perhaps the longest subtitle of any author I've interviewed, An Immigration Crisis, A Terrorist Conspiracy, The Summer of Survivor, A Ridiculous Fake Billionaire, A Fight for Florida, and The 537 Votes That Changed Everything. Thanks for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 